Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're actually starting a brand new collection of talks entitled Practicing the Way in Community. And I really believe in our cultural moment, it seems like life will seem to only get tougher, not easier for the Christian. I want to make sure when I say that, this isn't me fear-mongering, this isn't me freaking out, but it's reality and it's very helpful for us to be, come to grips with reality. Not in a spirit of fear, but really a spirit of faith and just direction and clarity on what the next day should look like. Our orthodox views that Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years on things like life, salvation, sexuality, sin are scrutinized. And so we have to come to grips with that. But what I would love for us to do, and I love these two songs and this prayer, it's imperative that you and I become a people of love together. That's why I really think the local church is so important. It's, it's a place to really operate and really show the world. Uh, Jesus says that we're supposed to be a city on a hill. Amen? And uh, I just felt like my grandmother, Southern Accent, came in on a hill. Okay, so wow, Tennessee, let's go. Uh, we're not supposed to hide from the world. We're supposed to be a city set on a Hill. I don't know. I'm done with that word. And so that's what we're hoping to do over the next few weeks as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you've noticed, we have a bunch of different series, but it's always in 1 Timothy lately. And so now we're going to be in chapter 5. And I really believe community will do wonders for our perseverance in this fight. We're in a fight, but let me just say it's a good and beautiful fight. Community is difficult. Relationships are messy. And I hope these next few weeks we're honest about that. And so we're going to be asking the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to give us these two things. Number one, I hope and pray that you join me in praying for a new perspective on community. What is the community of Jesus supposed to look like? And what is my perspective now? And how can I change that in light of these passages we're going to be looking at? Not only a new perspective, but we're also praying for new practices. In other words, it's not just the new ideas. What's important for us as a church is how are we putting this into action? How are we loving and serving our neighbor, but also so throughout the biblical text, it's always, especially the household of faith, especially the local church, how are we loving and serving each other? So I'm hoping over the next few weeks, you establish and you identify practices, applications that you can apply to the person on your left and the person on your right. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Not a lot of scripture today, but it's a lot of stuff and we so need it. It says, don't rebuke an older man. This is to Timothy. Again, he's in his mid thirties and he was just in verse 11. We spent a few weeks on 11 through 16. Paul says, hey, command, teach these things, be bold. However, while you're being bold for the truth, do not, do not despise the truth, right? Do not deny the truth, but while you're doing it, and this has been a word for me, do not rebuke an older man. And women, it's, it's included to you as well. So I would say me in my position, I'm not gonna tell you my age, but my birthday is coming up. So I guess I have to tell it to you soon, but I am in a position at our church where there are a few of you, a lot of you, half of you who are older than me. And so it's my duty to stick for truth, but how do we do that in a way where I'm not rebuking? In other words, being really hard and just straight in your face. And if you know me, that's how I always am, right? Just, I'm just mean. Don't say amen, wife. Okay, so don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. You know, encouraging. Whenever I want my dad to change his mind, I just say, but didn't you mean this, dad? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of it. Younger men as brothers, verse 2. Older women as mothers 
and the younger women as sisters with all purity. This is even, uh, just real quick, with all purity, this is saying, especially a younger pastor, it can be really easy to, to see uh, when we do ministry, we're, we're serving people emotionally, spiritually. And so with all purity, saying, making sure there's, there's boundaries there. We, I love to serve uh, males and females at our church, but there are certain boundaries we put in place so that everybody can say, okay, this was done in purity. I, I had no mixed motives here. So he's saying, make sure that you're above reproach and how you meet and, and talk to people of the opposite sex. So what we have here, and I want us to see, this is a message to a pastor, but we have to see, is Jacob Knopf here? Bro, my man, good to see you, man. Well, we, you go, I love seeing you here. He's, he's in Atlanta now, and I miss him. He's one of our college students. Okay, I got to get back to life. He's the kind who would hate to be called out in public too, so I'm so sorry, Jacob. All right, so this is a message to a pastor, but I want us to see throughout this whole time, this is also a message to everyone, okay? So it's not just me that has to apply the scripture tonight, amen? Amen. So we're going to look at how do we deal with each other generationally. This is the title of tonight's message, Practicing the Way in a Multi-Generational Community. This is a very rare thing today. And I'm praying by God's grace, we become more and more like, I don't think we're fully there yet. We're amazing, but we're not there yet. And I hope that tonight we establish some things that we can change. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful that you love us and you're continuing to build our church. Jesus, I'm so grateful that you died on the cross for us and rose again in victory. And God, this life that we live, it's not even the life that we live on our own power, but Christ, it's you living in and through us. And Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that you're the one who makes us aware of the, of the presence of God. Holy Spirit, you're the one who convicts us and encourages us. And I pray that you do exactly that tonight. The, way, the same way you've used this passage the last 2,000 years, I pray that you would use it tonight. May you see Passion Creek Church as a group of people who have open hearts and open minds and truly want to be changed by you. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says, amen, amen. Consumerism is the Trojan horse of practicing the way in community. Allow me to give you a brief history lesson on economics. In the last hundred years, particularly in the West, especially here in America, we've transformed the way our economy works. A quick way to say it is we've transformed from a needs-based economy to a wants-based economy. It used to be, I will only buy something if I need it. And now we've kind of changed the definition of what the word need means, amen? It really means want. Like I tell my wife, I need that pit boss, you know what I'm saying? And now that I got it, I did need it. Amen. Praise the Lord. All the, all the men at least say amen. But anyways, there's been a strategy, and it didn't happen overnight. But over the last hundred years, there's been a shift in the way we do economy, and I think it actually has done a lot to our ethos and to our community especially. The strategy really began to shift in the 1930s. You have the Great Depression. FDR, the president, encouraged everybody to put their monies back into the bank for the sake of the country, in the name of duty, for the sake of prosperity for everyone. We need to put our money back into the bank. And eventually people did that. From the 1930s to the 1950s, again, this is a very brief overview. I can get really nerdy and talk more about this, but time, okay? Dinner, all those things. Now, from the 1930s to 1950s, the appeal to consumption for you in marketing, the way to buy something, it was saying it is your duty. It is to conform. Conform. This is what everybody else is doing. You must do this. Andrew Root, in a great book called Faith Formation in a Secular Age, on page 19, he says, Duty, obligation, and authority, mixed with the great sense of adventure, set the terms for the American life. So the 30s through the 50s, duty, obligation, and authority, mixed with some adventure. Would you say that's how you describe America today? No, okay? So they bought the house, 
with a white fence in the suburbs because America said to. And this was what we actually call them now is the greatest generation. Sadly, the greatest generation is almost gone entirely. This, these are the ones who fought in World War II. And I love, it's one of my favorite things to meet a World War II vet and thank them for their service. But I think we call them the greatest generation because it really was the last generation for us in America where all of their decisions were because of duty. This is what we must do for the greater good. And to us today, it's inspiring because I know for me, I love people like that, but I also recognize I didn't want to fight in a war. I'm a loser. I, I just wanted to go to college. I, I didn't rush to go into the military myself. In 1961, President JFK, he noticed this in his inaugural address. It's very famous. He has this line. I think it's because he started to notice the shift. We were shifting from duty to something else. And he was calling people back and he says what? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And this was a heralding back. This was, hey, remember, this is how we've gotten so good. Don't forget this. But the 1960s had a huge disruption. A lot of sociologists, historians point to the 1960s when everything kind of went haywire. So um, really then, duty and conformity were no longer a high regard. It was actually an oppressive word. Um, you had the influence of Sigmund Freud. You had the hippie movement, right? Life was all about pursuing your own personal desires. Desires outweighed duty every day of the week, starting in the 1960s. Now, you're going to say, my grandmother, you know, lived in the 60s. She didn't believe that. I know that there's certainly all of us are different, but as a broad stroke, this is true of our country. Now, here's the big thing. Marketers, people who make commercials, those who made the magazines, they noticed this new shift, this trend, and they capitalized on it. Historians call this the age of authenticity. We're in this age now. We're really, we starting to believe if to serve society is to starve yourself. We have to serve ourselves. If it's myself or the country or some other greater good, let's just not even just do country. Even we're struggling this with the gospel. Serve Jesus or serve yourself. Most of us, we lean towards just serving ourselves. And what happens, the advertisers put, okay, this, this good life of no longer having duty is equated with the young life. To be young is to be free. To be young is to be full of life. And society hasn't messed your life yet. That's why you have those shirts that says what? I'm just not adulting today, right? And they're cute, whatever. But it has done a lot to our community. The appeal now is no longer to conformity. It's no longer to duty. The appeal to consumption, the reason you should buy a product is now competition. It's now desires. It's not even about keeping up with the Joneses. In fact, it's about beating the Joneses. It's not about because everybody else is doing it. In fact, it's saying, I am buying this because nobody else is doing it. I am here to prove by my, my purchasing habits on Amazon that I am uniquely me. Ironically, everybody thinks that, but they all still buy the same thing, okay? But it's proving, and this is what happens, and I hear this all the time. We, are, we have bought the lie, to be young is to be alive. I've met older people that say, don't worry, I'm young at heart. I want to be old at heart. Right? When you read the scriptures, it's, and I get it, and I love older people. And again, even the phrase older people now seems mean. It's not. It means God has been gracious to you, and you're smarter than us, or at least wiser than us, right? But, <laughs> amen, right? <laughs> but there's this, this trend towards let's be young at heart. We even have a store called Forever 21. I did not love 21, okay? Actually, I did. But, you know, I love the age I'm at now more. Amen. All right. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what has this done to the church? 
It's done a lot. And we have to say, as, as a pastor, I have given into this as well, so I have, I'm the first one to say sorry because I've marketed this way. But I, th- I believe that this next point is up on the screen. Here's what, here, here, write this down. Society, not scripture, has shaped the way we do ministry. I think it's the mess we're in. And again, I'm not this, the sky is falling. Jesus is still alive. He's still on his throne, amen. So I'm not gonna go that route, but... We're not in the greatest of times, and I believe the church has to own up to their responsibility, our responsibility, and I think part of it is because society, not scripture, has shaped the way we do ministry. What do I mean by that? I think the way we even market our churches is not to say, hey, serve. We no longer serve each other out of duty. In fact, we come to church to be served. We're saying, I didn't like that church. It didn't serve me enough. I didn't like their music. And so we're saying, look, you come to our church, we'll serve you the best. We're the best one to serve you out of everybody here. And it turns into this competition, like what marketing wants you to do, where you begin to compete with other churches. We rush to be labeled a young church. The last thing pastors want to be told is that you pastor an old church. Why? Well, marketing has told us to be young is to be relevant. To be old is to be irrelevant. Let me just say, one of the things I despise hearing, and again, I understand why you've said it, but I hate when we're told, oh, you're just a young church. To me, in the scriptures, even what we're seeing in 5, 1 through 2, a church is always multi-generational, or else it's not fully yet a church. The church cannot boast in being young or even being old. Hopefully, our boast is in that we are multi-generational. We're even at the point where using the phrase boomer is usually used in a derogatory sense. I have used it in the wrong way, and I've had to apologize. Some of y'all send me emails, rightly so, and I've had to say sorry. I think I've even publicly done that as well. But also, those, a lot of people who get mad hearing boomer, they're the same people who also say those millennials, and that's also derogatory, because it's typically not a happy, nice thing that you say after you talk about millennials. And us millennials, let me just clear the record here. Millennials are even turning 40 now. When you're talking about kids in college, those are Gen Z. Can I just stand up for millennials real quick? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Quit lumping us in. I'm just kidding. But Gen Z, they're so lucky. All the good things, like, oh, that's Gen Z. If they're bad, they're millennial. It's like, come on, you know? (laughs) Millennials have kids. They haven't been in college in a long time. They've already forgotten everything they've learned in college. I mean, millennials, we have very much moved on and we're moving up. But in churches, we've done a poor job of saying, okay, we're a millennial church. We're here for those. We're here for Gen Z. We are here for them, but we're here for everybody. And these views of, of pitting generations against each other and trying to be this young, vibrant church, it comes from society and not from Scripture. I think Paul here is ensuring Timothy understands we must love and relate to each generation. This won't come natural to us, and that's, I believe, why the power of the Holy Spirit will empower us to do that. But also, we have to be very practical, get honest, and establish practices in our own personal lives to make sure we are loving our community well. So, for the rest of our time, I'm going, to use the, I'm going to use these two phrases. It's the first half of the Christian life and the second half of the Christian life. This paradigm has been very helpful for me in understanding young age and old age. And this is, um, those, that, those phrases aren't particularly in the Bible, but you have a lot of pastors, ministry leaders throughout history have begun to use this kind of language. Uh, David Brooks, he has a great book called Second Mountain. So he calls it that, the, your first half of life. You're scaling the first mountain of success and you recognize, wait, there's more to life than that. So then you go down to the valley, which we call Middle Ages, amen. And you go by the Harley, do all those fun things because you don't want to be, you still want to be young. But then you go to the second mountain, you actually recognize your life is for other people and it's a lot more rewarding that way. So what we're going to look at is I hope we're not going to bash young people. 
I happen to be one of them still, okay? We're not going to bash older people. We're going to see in each stage the delights, the deceptions, and the discouragements of the first half of the Christian life and the second half of the Christian life. And let me add one more word of caution and then we'll move forward. Just because you are, let's say, 75, okay, doesn't necessarily mean you're in the second half of the Christian life. This is very much a maturity thing. But if you are 15, you are likely not in the second half of the Christian life, okay? So there's a balance here. So I want you to identify, but it's okay. A lot of us have just gotten saved. And so it's kind of impossible. You, you have to do this journey. And at our church, we're very passionate. We love to talk about the journey and, and enjoy it, right? Smell the breeze. Uh, is that even a phrase? I'm going to move on. Okay, so <laughs> smell the breeze. How do you do that? Okay, let's look at Christians in the first half of life. Let's move on before you guys uh, clip that. Okay, so. Let's look at this verse. Christians in the first half of life. Uh, next scripture, please. The glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is gray hair. I mean, that just seems rigged, right? It's like, young men, we're strong. Old men, you got gray hair. I guess that's cool, you know? Come on, Proverbs. But we're going to look at the strength. A lot of us in the Christians in the first half of life, you can go back now. Christians in the first half of life, they have strength. What you'll see, if you're in the first half of the Christian life, it's less about maintaining energy and you're just trying to contain your energy. Those are in the second half of like, I'm just here to maintain. I'm trying to keep as much energy as possible, right? And so for you, like in this, in the first half of life, stuff like prayer, when I meet somebody, I try to pastor somebody who's in the first half of life, I tell them, you know, you need to pray. And they're like, yeah, 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 I know. But, 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 and it always really is a last resort. Why? Because you are, you have enough energy to try to fix your situation. You, you have enough strength to, well, okay, I'll, I'll, let me try a few things first before I ask God. When you're in the second half of your life, you're like, Lord, I need you. You know what I'm saying? I am tired of trying. I've done that before. Ain't no use working harder. It's all about working smarter. Amen. But Christians in the first half have so much energy, and that's a beautiful thing. Here's the next point. Here's what you guys really delight in. If you're in the first half of the Christian life, enjoy it. There's so much energy there, okay? Now, Christians in the first half of life delight in making progress. Your life is about making so much progress. You love it. You first get saved. It's called the honeymoon stage. And you're like, bah, bah, bah. Like you are just growing, growing, growing. And you look at other people like, how come you're not growing like me? I shared the gospel to 10 people this week. What have you done, right? And it's just this like, wow. It's just all this progress you make overnight. And you love God because of how much he's changing your life. Isaiah 43, 2 should be on the screen. It says this passage. I want you to notice here. A person in the first half of life reads this verse different than if you're in the second half of life. The first half of life says this. Okay, look, I will be with you. Okay. When you pass through the waters. Yeah. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched. When you walk through the fire, the flame will not burn you. You're like, that's right. I am like unstoppable God. Yeah. That's that. God, me and you, baby, we're going to save this world. The first half of life, even in just this phrase, I'll be with you. Yeah. Yeah. But when you pass through the waters, how cool is that? God, I'm here to pass through the waters with you. When you're second half of your life, oh good, he's gonna be with me. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It's so much better with him than without him. You know what I'm saying? Way different. What I want us to see is churches, and I must say I've done this in my own experience. It's so much more fun to preach about passing through the waters, but actually you get real burnt out if you skip how he's gonna be with you. 
We, as a, as a marketing, like because we're saturated by secularism and all this stuff, we love progress, but you and I, what we need most is his presence. Presence is better than progress any day of the week. Now, if you're in the first half of life, you need to make some progress, okay? You need to get out of bed. You need to work, okay? You know what I'm saying? Okay, millennial? You know what I'm saying? I can make fun of millennials because I'm a millennial, okay? I'm not allowed any other generation, though. So, Christians in the first half of life delight in making progress. Your relationship with God in this stage, and it's not bad, but it's not the full picture. Your relationship with God is defined by activity. You view your day, did I do enough for God today? You view the church, are they doing enough for the community? You look at people in the church, are they serving enough? Everything's about activity, activity. And guess what? There's a lot of activity to be done. You need to read your Bible. You need to love your neighbor. You need to fight injustice. You need to serve the poor. Very important stuff. But too often we neglect self-reflection. It's all about action. Too often we don't allow God to speak to us in the silence. We can't stand silence. We hurry up and find another YouTube video to watch. We don't like solitude, getting away. No, no, no. I need to be in it. I need to be in the city. Like I need to be where everybody is. We, we kind of avoid prayer. We'd rather study the Bible than, than pray to God. And again, in the first half of life, this is kind of part of the deal. It's just what happens. But you have to recognize there's more to the Christian life than that. And if you don't recognize that, you're going to burn out. You're going to, get, you're going to begin to hate Jesus, even though Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here, again, we delight in making progress. You know what we over-desire? We over-desire success in the first half of the Christian life. We define our relationship with God by how successful we are or not. Thomas Merton. Do I have the Thomas Merton quote up here? Oh, amazing. I love this quote. He says, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find once they reach the top that the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. We we are in such a success culture. And I feel this pressure as a pastor to prove to you that our church is successful. We have never gone down. We're just going up and up and up because that's what great things do, right? Well, I've recognized sometimes great things take dips. And that's hard and it's humiliating. But if you're in the second half of life, you're like, yeah, but God has always met me in the dip. We have to be honest with ourselves. How much of society has formed our view of ministry versus the scriptures because Moses spent a lot of time wandering in the desert. Paul was beaten a lot. A lot of us, success, we just think it's one great thing after another. And if you think that's what coming to Jesus is all about, you will be very disappointed and very burnt out. So those are the delights, okay? You delight in making progress. And as a church, we love to come alongside you and making you feel like you're checking off a list and we are killing the game. Okay, that's great for a season. Christians in the first half of life, what about deceptions? Are deceived by disordered desires. We use this phrase, and I recognize I haven't always explained this phrase. Disordered desires comes from St. Augustine. He was in the fourth century. And what it is, is we were created to love God, love others, and then love ourselves. We're supposed to love ourselves. okay? But after loving God and loving others, that's the proper order of our desires. That's how God created us. You're thinking, oh, but I want to love myself. Trust me, the most loving thing you can do is to first love God and love others. That's the most loving thing you can do for yourself. So we tend to do this. 
where we have disordered desires. In the first half of the Christian life, we're like, no, I need to love me. God, I love you, but a lot of us, if we're honest, and it's okay because God is patient with us, we love God because we think God loves us more than anything. And so we only serve God because ultimately we serve ourselves. Does that make sense? And so we think everything's about us. In the first half of life, you kind of still get caught up in that. There are two specific disordered desires that I think we fall into. There's a million different sins out there, but here's two. Number one is gluttony. In the first half of your life, it is in the first half of the Christian life, you will engage in gluttony. What is gluttony? It's overindulgence and overconsumption. Now, a lot of people today relate it to food, and that's true, but it can be related to experiences. What it is, gluttony is never satisfied, but it tries to be. It tries to get more and more. And what gluttony does, it tries to be entertained. It tries to be comforted. It tries to be soothed, okay? So this is what gluttony does. But we have so much energy, and we actually are pretty naive about the world and think the world has what we want. So we keep chasing after the world and consuming things from the world because we think that is the good life. But it always winds up leaving you empty. Second Timothy 2, Paul says to Timothy, flee from those youthful passions. It's not as satisfying as you think. That's gluttony, but the second one that disordered desires we have is greed. This is also an insatiable desire for more. 1 Timothy 6.10, we're going to look at it in a few weeks. We're going to look at because we're in chapter 5, so the next one will be 6. And it says that money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? It's so deceptive. It triggers all sorts of other sins. Here's the thing about greed. Greed is never satisfied, but it also tries to be. So you just think, what was it? One of the rich guys in the 1900, Carnegie maybe, you know, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. That's greed. So I would say gluttony. Some of us fall into one or the other more. Some of us, you're like both, like amen to you. Okay, so gluttony really falls into, okay, I need more in order to be entertained. But greed says I need more in order to be successful. And the first half of the Christian life, we're pretty pumped about God because we think he's here to make us successful. And that's kind of wrong, okay? Especially wrong if it's serving ourselves in a disordered desire. You know why a lot of younger people, or people in general, really hate that the church talks about money? Because when we talk about money, it's usually to give it, okay? And money is the one thing that we think will make us most successful. So when we communicate, hey, give away the one thing that you think will make you successful, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't like this church. They're all about money. That's because it's really getting to our most disordered desire. I need to hurry. Christians in the first half of life are discouraged by their wickedness. So again, we've looked at delights. We've looked at deceptions. Now let's look at discouragements. You will notice a Christian in the first half of life. And by God's grace, we've had so many baptisms here. There's a lot of us that are in the first half of life at this church. And one thing that discourages me is how discouraged you are about your life. When we talk... It's always about sin. It's always about regret. Now, sin is real. We talk about it all the time. We need to. But I love one, one uh, I can't remember the pastor's name, but he said every one time you talk about sin, you should talk about five times the Savior. Amen? Some of us, we only talk about our sin and never how Jesus actually was crucified for it and it's forgiven and we can move forward. But a lot of us live with regret. One counselor calls it, we should ourselves. I should have done this. I should do that. And you don't actually enjoy the gifts of what God has given you because you're like, I need to be better. And you recognize you're not. When the first half of the Christian life, guess what? 
it's a journey of becoming more like Jesus. And it's actually a grace that you recognize your shortcomings. But also recognize Jesus doesn't leave you there. Be patient. God is patient with you. And you will continue to look more and more like him. So it's so important. If you're in the first half of the Christian life, apply grace to your life. You're not going to be perfect. Repentance is not about perfection. It's about taking sides. It's saying, God, okay, what I did was wrong, but I want to become more like you. Will you forgive me? Why can I become more like you? Now, I can talk about this for hours. It's one of my favorite topics, okay? And we do this in the, in the summer when we do our apprentice workshop. I talk a lot about the stages and mansions. So I need to move forward, though, because of time. And let's talk about Christians in the second half of life. Christians in the second half of life. Psalm 71, 18, it says, Even while I am old and gray... I should be on the screen. Even while I am old and gray, God, do not abandon me while I proclaim your power, look, to another generation, your strength to all who are to come. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse here. Even when I'm old and gray, do not abandon me. And I think a lot of us, let me just say this, especially the way secularism, the the way the marketing, the way our world is, We actually create it to where old people are forgotten. The way we market churches, hey, we're a young church. I'm sorry. If we've ever come across that way, I just want to apologize. Um, That's not right. And I think that whole do not abandon me. I think when you're in the second half of life, you start to feel abandoned by your loved ones. I mean, even the way that we set up nursing homes, they're always like out of the way. And they're always like, okay, we're just going to go visit our grandmother once every two months, right? We just kind of put it out of the way. Why? I think it's because we're so afraid of death. We don't like being around people who are close to death because secularism has no answer for death. That's a whole other theory that I have, okay? So, but I love this mentality here. Don't abandon me. I still got some left in the tank and I'm gonna proclaim your power to another generation. This is a powerful thing. I think in the second half of life, you recognize this. You can impress or you can empower but only one will go sour. You can impress or you can empower, but only one's gonna go sour. In the second half of life, you start to recognize, oh wait, giving things away is a whole lot more rewarding than holding things to myself. Seeing my grandkids smile is more rewarding than when I smile. You start to recognize your life really was made for others. And my prayer at our church is that we create a bunch of people in their 30s that act like 75-year-olds. You know what I'm saying? Where we are just like so pumped about just giving everything away and we're just patting people on the head. It's like, bro, I'm only five years older than you, right? Whatever. But I want us to like always have those mints in our pocket. Like that's what I want for our church, amen? Or those cherry or those uh, caramel one. That's what my grandma always had. Praise God. I can't wait to go to her house every week. I have one of those little caramel candy dills. It's amazing. Okay. Really? We are called to, we can, we can enter into the second half of life sooner than later. And I think a lot of people talk about the midlife crisis. For some reason, my generation has really experienced it even when they turned 30. When you turn 30, it's like the Friends episode, like, come on, God, we had a deal, right, with Joey. But 30, it, you, start, you start to look at, at the world differently. Um, and I think our society doesn't have an answer for it. It's just, oh, man, 20s was the best decade ever. Sorry, your life's kind of miserable now. Good luck. But in reality, one of my mentors' mentors said to him, to, said to me, he said, 60s is the best decade of your life, 70s is the second best, and 80s is the third best decade of your life. I was like, that's pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. I always thought it was weird saying high school was your best years. I'm like, oh, Lord, please no. Those were, 
I hope I did not just peek, you know? Oh, right? But we kind of set it up that way. I think that's why a lot of the movies are set in high school, because we're like, oh, remember those days? Me and my wife watched 17 again for the first time this week. All the vibes. It was so good. Okay, so I'm a Zac Efron guy. I hate to admit that. Okay, now, move on to the next point. Woo! Okay, second half, he's in Greatest Showman. That's when he won my respect. Okay, Christians in the second half of life delight in being present. Notice the con- contrast. In the first half of life, and this is okay, you, enjoy, you, you delight in making progress. It's all about what have I done for you today, God? And you got to do things. Like I think, when, again, when, when, people, when we say it's not about doing, it's about being. I'm like, yeah, but this crowd needs to hear about doing more. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not just being. Like you have to do. It, I hate that we really put those things against each other. But in the second half of life, you really do delight in being present in the moment. In this stage, we call this passive spirituality. Again, at our church, I hope that you hear us talk about this often because it's not normal. It's not super normal in today's world to talk about passive spirituality, but it's about silence and solitude, like the spiritual formation retreat. Like, let's go up north and do nothing. Can, you want to come? We're so excited. It's just about getting away. In this, half of, in this second half of life, you actually do pray more because you know nothing else works. You actually don't care about milestones because a lot of those are already behind you, so you just enjoy the moment. And you recognize the moment is so rich. I love how God says, a thousand years is like a day, but I also love that he says, a day is like a thousand years, which means even in that one day, there's so many moments to pull out, and if you reflected on it, it could take a thousand years. I love that. We always think about it in the other way, but do it the other way now, okay? We enjoy being present. Now, here's what's scary. When you enjoy being present, the tendency is to throw away all active spirituality. Oh, I'm older now. You youngins, you do that. You do all that. Now, there's some things where it's like, yes, we're young. We're going to be the one picking up the heavy stuff, okay? But at the same time, I think I have noticed in my life, those who are in the second half of life, and maybe I think it's because pastors like me haven't done the best in encouraging, but please do not voluntarily sit on the sidelines. There's still so much you can do for the kingdom of God. There's still so much witnessing to be done. And, and one of the biggest burdens I have is when I see people who are on the, second, the back nine, they're just like, okay, that, I used to serve, but my, my deal now is just to sit. One of my greatest things I love, John Piper, he always says, I will never retire. And I hope that that's still my disposition when I'm older, right? Just there's always more to do for the kingdom. So again, at our church, we want actually people in the first half of life to begin to experience past spirituality, but also some of us in the second half of life, we're hoping that to encourage you to get more active in your faith. Now, those are the delights. It's a beautiful thing, and it's so great. I love talking to my grandmother, and, we're, and she just, she doesn't have a phone around. In fact, actually this week, though, she's on the phone more than me, and I called her out. It felt great, okay? But I, was, I just love how she just talks about moments, right? She's so peaceful. I'm like, I want to be like that. I don't want to keep thinking about the next thing. I just want to enjoy now. I want to enjoy today. And Sabbath helps me do that on a weekly basis. But what are we deceived by in the second half of the Christian life? Christians in the second half of life are deceived by deadened desires. Notice the contrast. In the first half of life, it's disordered desires. But now it's deadened because the world has let you down. There are two specific deadened desires that maybe you engage in. Number one is anger. Some people in the second half of the Christian life or just older people are angry, especially when you mention a thing called politics, right? (laughs) It's easy to get angry about it. And especially, and I will say this, 
those who are older, you, you know a different America than I do. And so I think you kind of, you know how things used to be and it frustrates you. And I'm just like, this is how life's always been. I mean, the first thing I remember my childhood was 9-11 and then it was a recession. And then, I mean, it's just been kind of bad for us all the way through, but y'all remember glory day? Like you remember Reagan? Well, that's kind of cool, right? But so you're angry that things have changed, right? Let's go to this quote by Henry Nouwen and then we'll go back to this one. So Henry Nouwen has a, such a good quote. It says, this is not, it's talking about anger that we experience in the second half of life. This is not an open, blatant, roaring anger, but an anger hidden behind the smooth word. Like, I hate, I know I said old church, uh, young church, but when you go to old church, like they smile, but you don't know what they're saying behind your back. You just gotta be careful, okay? Smooth word, the smiling face, the polite handshake and good cologne, right? It is a frozen anger. Christians are really good at this one. An anger which settles into a biting resentment and slowly paralyzes a generous heart. If you're in the second half of the Christian life, I want you to really examine your heart. Has it been full of biting resentment? And are you not as generous as you once were? Now, I heard a pastor say this the other day. It's, it's a long journey to get away from God, but it just takes one step to come back. God is always there for you. So this isn't a guilt trip. This is a, hey, let's just wake up, recognize where we're at, and come back home to God. But some of us are angry. Why? Because this world is full of fake advertising. That ointment, I still look old. You know what I'm saying? Or like that, you know, I thought my 401k would work out. Now look at that. Like, you know, there's, the world lets you down. People let you down. It's exhausting. Your kids aren't as cool as you thought they'd be, right? Or whatever. And you were just, <laughs> good. Now, Let's look at the second dead in desire. I know some of y'all think that. Let's be real. Okay. The second one is apathy. Maybe you're like, um, you're a peacemaker, so you don't get angry, but you're just, you're just apathetic. You've been burnt enough. You've just stopped trying. You don't want to get rejected again, so you don't put yourself in situations to get rejected. Because the world has burnt you. See, this is, anger and apathy are a whole lot like greed and gluttony. Because they're, in, they're consumed to being satisfied, but I think greed and gluttony are more naive and they think it, the satisfaction can happen. Anger and apathy are mad because you know you'll now never be satisfied. And you want to make sure everybody else around you isn't satisfied now. But Jesus is enough. Jesus can satisfy your weary soul. That's what we hope to bring and talk about each and every week. As your pastor, I hope that Again, we always talk about Jesus is better. I hope that you leave here saying, you know what? Life is hard. The world is going to chaos. But Jesus is better. And you know what? I desire him. Now, let's look at discouragements. This is so good. Christians in the second half of life are discouraged by their wounds. Again, the first half, you're discouraged by your own wickedness. Now you're discouraged by your wounds. You have memories, like scars. You look and see what's happened to you. And it's just discouraging. You, you kind of just feel bad for yourself. My wife and I, the last six months have been miserable for us. I mean, we have had one thing after another with hospital-related stuff, deaths. I mean, it's just been hard. And even now, I'm just like, God, I'm just so discouraged that, like, can I please have a break? Like, can Disney World be in my future soon, God? You know what I'm saying? Don't judge me, but judge me. I don't care. But, you know, but some of us, like, you, you don't have six months. You have six decades to look back at. And you're like, I've just been let down after let down that pastor. I thought he was a great man. He cheated on his wife. I thought that, you know, like it's hard not to get cynical. Ronald Rollheiser, 
book on prayer, an amazing, this is a long quote, forgive me, but don't, but I don't, again, I've got to stop with that. Now it says this, it says, near the end of our lives, many of us struggle to move beyond the death of our own dreams, beyond how we have been wounded and cheated, and beyond all the resentment that comes with aging. This is one of the final tasks of the spiritual life, the movement from resentment to gratitude, from cursing to blessing, from bitterness to graciousness, and it is a monumental task. This must be understood for what it is. It's not a sign of regression. A lot of us are so discouraged. We think, okay, I used to be this great Christian, but now I'm just bitter. No, it's this next step in the growth of the Christian life, but a critical new moment in the spiritual life. As we age and become ever more aware of our wounds, our wasted potential, how many of us have wasted potential, right? And the unfairness of life, we come face to face with the final spiritual hurdle, the challenge to become mellow and gracious in spirit. I told you it was a long quote, okay? Last thing, the spiritual task of midlife and old age is that of wrestling with God of acknowledging all of the ways in which life has disappointed and betrayed us. And in spite of that, understanding what God means with the words, my child, everything I have is yours. And maybe you're not in the second half of life, but you are bitter. You have a lot of resentment. I really do pray right now that the Holy Spirit empowers you in this moment to experience that healing. We want to be a church that comes alongside of you. And that's why my two concluding points, this cannot happen alone. This healing that you're looking for, this growth and maturity that you're looking for happens in community. As a community of Jesus, write this down, we are here for those who are struggling to get their life together. You'll recognize it's, it's important for us as a church. We have to do series on family. And some of you are thinking, I've already done the family thing. I know, but there's others in our church who haven't. So we have to do that thing. We have to talk about finances because people don't know how to get that thing together, right? And God has a word for that. So it's an opportunity to serve. So some of you are like, oh, another family series. Like, yes, but this is a way to serve your neighbor. Some people, we need to get our marriages better, right? Or whatever. So we as a community, we're here for those who are trying to get their life together. And so we are patient. It's so important for us because I think some of us are on the second half of life. We get so impatient with like, oh, you haven't learned that lesson yet? But, but here's what we have to remember. God has been so patient with you. You can be patient with others. People say harsh things. What I've found, people say harsh things either because they're trying to get their life together or they're mad because their life never got together and they want to bring others down. Just recognize that and still love them. As a community, we're hurting. Hurt people hurt people. Instead of recognizing that as, oh, I'm done with that person. What if, oh, that person needs my love. We're here for those who are struggling to get their life together and it requires a lot of patience. I have little kids. I get it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, I've got to teach you that again. That's what we're called to do. But also, as a community of Jesus, we are here for those who are struggling to give their life away. In the second half of life, you recognize, oh, this thing's almost over. How am I leaving an impact to the next generation? And that's hard. 
It's hard to no longer be about yourself, but it's now about your kids or your grandkids or people in the church running around. As a church, we love to talk about success, but I am adamant that we need to talk more and more about suffering because there are people in this room, they have a lot of dreams that never came to fruition. A lot of people in this room that have illnesses, their body aches. Jesus has a word for that. Do we leave enough room for grief at our church? I don't know. I'm, what I'm trying to do, and I want us to do as a church, we need to prepare each other for death. So that when death comes, we receive it with joy because we know what's coming next. Many of us can't accept death because we have yet to accept our life and the lot that he's given us. So at our church, I want us to embrace old age with joy and with contentment. I want us who are younger to honor those who are above us and who've gone before us and not look at them as down or irrelevant, but also I long for our church to be those who are older, not to look down on the young as those young kids who are just trying to just get their own way, but just to love them and serve them. Imagine if we all served each other. Simply put, the church is a place where we minister to and are ministered to. We are not a church unless all of us are ministering to each other and allowing others to minister to us. Some of us, we're burnt out and angry because all we do is serve the church. And we get mad because it seems like other people aren't serving. Some of us, we just come and we feel empty because we're just coming. We think, okay, this church better serve me, this pastor. This better be a good sermon this week. You know what I'm saying? This better serve me. It's this, actually, though, we're here to serve and to be served. This is the gospel, and I think we need this reminder. Christianity starts with the cross. Let me just say, I think we need to revisit the cross every day. It's a call to die to self. For the first half of life, you need the cross, because guess what? You're not as great as you think you are. Your dreams are not going to probably come true, okay? Welcome to church. This is the message of the cross, though. But through death, through our longings getting destroyed, we find a new purpose, a new resurrected life. To those in the second half of life, we need to be reminded of the cross. Jesus came to serve and to love others. And in your unique stage of life is a beautiful opportunity to love and serve the generations below you. Can you imagine if we became a community that practiced the way of Jesus together, where we loved and honored those who are older and those who are younger. We learn from everyone. We love everyone. We lead everyone. Can you imagine how countercultural that would be in a world who is racing to be young, racing to not be old? That's how we could be different. And it's through the cross and resurrection of Christ.